Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, Focus Compounding, the number one value investing podcast in the world, still in quarantine, coming at you from Dallas, Texas, on air with my co-founder, Mr. Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? Uh, it's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It's going great. We hope it's going great for everybody else as well. If this is the first time you're tuning in on YouTube, hit that subscribe button, thumbs video up. We are bringing you so much content. Uh, if you like write-ups, go to focuscompounding.com. Jeff writes three stocks a week that goes up on the website, um, and you could actually sign up for the Focus Compounding daily for free on the homepage. Just enter in your stuff, um, your email at www.focuscompounding.com. Uh, but Jeff is writing up Mills Music Trust, which went up today. Uh, uh, he's doing a write-up on Carrier and then Otis on Friday. So what you can expect from him is three write-ups a week at focuscompound.com. And if you do decide to sign up, use the podcast promo code, which will take some money off of the subscription price. So in today's podcast, it is Monday, Monday fun day. So I did tweet out a Q&A. The new schedule for the podcast going forward is Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and then I'm filling in the other days with my own content on YouTube, uh, really just bringing how-to videos and pretty much whatever uh, the listeners want me to talk about. Um, so definitely leave comments down below if you have any suggestions. Um, but the first question, we can jump right into it because I think we have more than 20 questions. It says, I know you use a low beta as one indicator that a stock is overlooked, but for a predictable business that Jeff feels confident Actually, let me go back. Sorry about that. Uh, that Jeff feels confident about his valuation. Wouldn't a high beta be preferable since, it is like, since it's likely mean more chances to buy cheap? More volatility equals more dips to buy. And they said, sorry, rookie mistake, mistaking beta for absolute volatility. I guess I'll shift the question to just wondering if Jeff prefers an overlooked stock with more absolute volatility since he have had more opportunities to buy. Yes, so we should explain what that difference there is. So uh, the reason why I prefer a lower beta is just for uh, a measurement thing. Um, beta is made up of two parts, really, which is the volatility of the stock, but also how correlated it is with, this, with an index. Um, and so what beta really is, is the um, non-stock specific um, volatility, the market volatility that it's experiencing. So at people have pointed this out to me before, shouldn't I just prefer when doing these measurements the amount of correlation with the market. And that's absolutely true. To see if a stock's overlooked or not, it doesn't really matter what the volatility is, it matters how correlated it is with the market. The downside to that is tons of websites calculate beta for reasons that aren't of interest to us, but just for academic reasons, you know, uh, academic finance reasons and stuff, people use beta a lot. So beta is a widely available um, figure, whereas correlation to the market is not necessarily shown to you that much. So it's something that you'd have to go and get on your own, which would be a little trickier. So as a first thing, just to figure out, we like to use share turnover to see if it's overlooked, which is just the um, amount of shares relative to the total amount that have turned over in a year. And then the other one is beta. But the only part we're interested in beta is not the volatility. It's just how correlated it is with the market. So how much it's moving with the market. Um, when it's moving on its own, yes, it would be more interesting if we found a very volatile stock that moves completely differently than the market. That would obviously be the best. Mm -hmm. And why did you, how did you come up with the share turnover and the low beta for, I guess, being a factor of an overlooked stock? Uh, it was mostly reverse engineering it. Uh, it was easier in some cases to figure out what an overlooked stock was, um, but not having an objective way of calculating that. So, I mean, there's lots of other ways you could do it. You could go and look all over the internet to see if anyone talks about it. You could go and try to figure out, you know, how many analysts cover it. Has ever been written on Value Investors Club? If I talk to a bunch of people, do they know what this stock is? Um, all sorts of things. But 
the way that objectively I found to be uh, have the most to do with whether it's overlooked or not was uh, beta to some extent and uh, share turnover, but especially the two together. The thing that really seems to be the case is that if you have, say, a 200% share turnover and a beta of two, there's no way the stock's overlooked. And if you have a um, beta of 0.5 and shares turnover less than 50% a year, it is an overlooked stock. I mean, I really can't come up with examples where those two things are true. And I show you the stock and you say, no, 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 that's not overlooked. You'd say, oh yeah, I agree. That is overlooked. So it's just a, a computerized sort of way of finding what humans would agree with, which is that when both of those things agree um, to show that it's a very low number, a lot lower than one, then it's an overlooked stock. And actually QuickFS, which we use a lot, has put up beta and share turnover. So, I mean, uh, under the business description now, so if they you did. go under there, yeah. So if you go under there and look under business description, it now shows you both of those things, and you can just see that a lot of the stocks we talk about that are overlooked um, will show up as having both of those be a lot below one. Uh, it changes over time, though. So I have pointed out before that, like 30 years ago or something, entire uh, like all the New York Stock Exchange and stuff probably turned over less than some uh, th than some stocks that are considered overlooked turnover today. So it has to do with some of that is like technology stuff today. Other stuff is just popularity. Uh, in the 20s, there was a lot more share turnover than the 50s. So it, it does cycle that way, but it's just relative. You know, if it has relatively low beta compared to stocks you're used to seeing and relatively low share turnover, that's a really good sign it's overlooked. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, next question that he asked was in the special situation class uh, from Greenblatt, which I've tweeted out. Uh, it says in one place, volatility is your friend in reference to the ability to buy dips. And so he asks, does focusing on overlooked stocks rather than merely predictable stocks, hurt your ability to buy at low prices? Uh, yes, it does. So sometimes uh, there is a tendency, especially in market panics and stuff, for more liquid stocks to drop faster. People sell what they can sell, not necessarily what they want to sell. So it is true that if you looked at very predictable overlooked stocks and very predictable um, uh, better known stocks, like say banks or something, illiquid banks, uh, illiquid bank stocks, did not drop as quickly as like um, Bank of America and JP Morgan and, and things like that. Those can drop very fast. The things that hedge funds are in and stuff can drop very fast and you can get a moment to be able to buy them. Whereas that's not true of the more overlooked stuff. So, um, but in the longer run, the more overlooked stuff can stay at prices that are, are uh, more attractive for a longer time. They can stay out of line for longer. So, you know, it depends. But in moments of panic and stuff, it's true that you often get better chances to buy liquid stocks that are very predictable, whereas you never see those types of moves in illiquid stocks uh, because they're, they're just too illiquid for that to happen. Mm -hmm. um, uh, next question says, how would you go about valuing a company like IESC, which if you look at its history, it hasn't been great, but since a somewhat recent turnaround has performed well, I know usually you look at their 10-year median ratios, and that is skewed by past performance. Uh, also, are you really born on February 29th? Yes, I am. I'm a leap year baby. But Jeff, do you have uh, uh, IESC? Have you ever looked at that? Yeah, I have looked at it before. So if you go quick FS, we can look at it. Um, and we, we can, can also show what I... Yeah, I was just going to say. Yeah. So if you actually look at the business description now, uh, beta turnover, uh, beta and share turnover is down here now, yeah. which is nice. Yeah, so that looks somewhat overlooked by that uh, measure. Although that's not tremendously overlooked if we look at the market cap, right? So if we go up and just look at the market cap for a second, 
um, we can see that the market caps, uh, yeah, actually that's pretty overlooked for that market cap, I'd say. So this is pretty much an overlooked stock. Uh, so what's going on here, if we look down at the uh, 10 year numbers down there, is that you have a big change in terms of like the operating margin and stuff like that, right? So the first half of that period, you didn't have a lot of um, profitability and now you do. Um, if you look at a median number, I'm actually not sure it changes by that much. So the pre, so like the median EBIT number is two percent. It has been better for a few years, you know, half of that period. So you could say, oh, should you take the last five years and assume that the margin would be three percent or something instead of taking the longer term average, which is like two percent? But you'll notice I always use median margin anyway. So the difference is not as big as you'd think, as if I was including that large loss in 2010. Um, I would look at both and think hard about whether the business has changed a lot. I need to understand it. Uh, if the business has changed a lot in a way that I think is permanently different, then I'd be willing to use the last few years only and not the long ago past. But without more information about the business, I'm not willing to do that. So it, it really does depend uh, on just analyzing the business. I would go back and read reports from 2010 or 2013 or whatever, probably 2013 based on this. And I'd read them from 2019, see if the business has changed dramatically in a way that's going to stay changed and not for some sort of cyclical reason or something like that. Got it. Let's go back to Twitter. Uh, what is your view on the futures of crude oil trading at negative numbers? So I was just asking you that if you saw that, and a lot of people have been tweeting about it. So the I believe it was the May contract went from like eighteen dollars to like negative thirty or something like that. Uh, yeah, we talked a little bit about this a long time ago, where I said that it's possible for uh, oil, not the um, most commonly traded futures of the uh, most common benchmarks. Like, that's unlikely that it would happen, though it could. Um, but that some oil prices will go negative, and they did. But I mean, some prices for physical oil in some places must have already been negative in a big way before this. I mean, but like, come on. I mean, is that you know? What I'm saying. I mean, is it's got to be like some sort of error or something. I imagine. Like, so I feel like we're gonna hear in a couple of days that someone at a hedge fund like did something like they bought like a zero strike or something like that you know in the futures i don't think that you know what i'm saying i think you're going to see negative prices for oil sometimes really uh well it's a waste product i mean we talked about this a little bit with like the byproducts and stuff the two of us not on online but um this has happened before that you have a product that you need to get rid of somehow oil is not a product you can get rid of uh, you can't just dump it. So you need someplace to store it. If there's no storage for it where you are, you have to find someone to get rid of it. I mean, if this, that doesn't mean that longer term out, you'll have things where it's negative, but it can happen that you have negative um, prices. And it's not about the production stuff where we talked about Saudi Arabia and Russia and all that. It's about the lack of demand for it completely. It, it's not set up that way for the possibility that you have demand drop, you know, 30% or whatever instantly. And so um, it, it will happen sometimes. And like I said, I, it has to be that that for uh, physical delivery of oil in some places, it's already been negative in a big way because there's some oil in places that are have to go pretty far to get to where they would be used. And there just can't be any demand where they're being produced right now. So the prices have to be negative at those places. Um, and, you know, I mean, that that you were storing oil there and stuff. So it has to happen. I mean, this does this can happen. You can have negative prices for uh, for for things like um, uh, chartering a ship or something. So sometimes you might have have someone paying to take a ship off your hands and operate it for you and stuff like that when there's just no trade going on and things like that. So it, it does happen. And it's happened in some products before. I think 100 years ago or so, 
um, demand for corn in the U.S. was so low that people were actually just burning corn as fuel because it had no value to the farmers and stuff because they planted too much of it. So it happens. Got it. Um, anything in the shale wreckage that's the least bit intriguing or have you completely sworn off commodity businesses by now? LOL. Uh, I don't know that we're income that we uh, would consider commodity businesses, but so far I haven't seen things that are cheap enough to interest me, but I assume that one day there will be. Yeah. And then Dave Waters said RS RV trades for less than cash and securities on hand. Probably not news to you. Uh, so yeah. So you want to put that in quick FS? Yeah, let's go. Okay. RSRV. Yeah. So is this is what I think it is. Yeah. The Reserve Petroleum Company. Yeah, so Reserve Petroleum. Company. So I have looked at Reserve Petroleum before, actually, a long time ago. Um, and I did not know that it was that cheap now because I haven't really been looking at uh, oil companies. But, you know, there will be some oil net nets and stuff like that. And some of those might be interesting. Um, I had looked at a couple, but they're not. If we go to the business description here, this one was a little more interesting. So the, the reason why this is more interesting is that uh, of where it's located. Um, I had seen some, I've seen several net nets in oil uh, worldwide now. They're in places I, I'm less, uh, they're in places where the laws and, and government and stuff worry me a little bit more. But so there are several net nets already in oil around the world. But they're in some um, countries where I, I would be afraid the government might not let you take your money out of there and stuff. So uh, this is one where that's not the case. So, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I would have to look at it again. I have not looked at it recently. But, it, yeah, there's some things in oil that are getting very cheap. Got it. Let's see. Dave says his favorite part is how they literally cannot find a number of their shareholders. So they just hold the crew dividends on those shares as a liability on the balance sheet. That's kind of funny. Um, let's see. It has been observed. Yeah, there's a couple. Yeah, I was just going to say there's a couple of stocks. I know of at least two other stocks where, where management has said that uh, they, a major factor is that they can't find shareholders. Really? That's funny. Yeah, and, and so there's some arguments sometimes of should we not pay dividends because, you know, or should we pay dividends? And if we do pay dividends, will the shareholders contact us? You know, that's always one that apparently works is that if you start paying dividends and you had yeah. it before, that <laughs> you're likely to find your shareholders. Yeah. Imagine that, right? <laughs> uh, next question has been observed that stock market bottoms occur three to four months after the event, like a recession or a depression is under control. For example, in 2008, it took 15 months for the bottom to occur. Do you think we are yet experienced the bottom? Uh, I don't think this is the bottom. I mean, if that if that holds, then obviously not. It, it, we didn't. The bottom was not three to four months uh well, it's yeah. Things will get worse for a while before they get better. So that that either won't hold true this time or we haven't had a bottom. Uh, and then he also asked if you have any book recommendations on how to analyze financial statements. Uh, the one that I recommend for everyone, it's really old and very simple, is uh, the interpretation of financial statements by Ben Graham. So I like um, financial shenanigans, quality of earnings. And then is it Mary Buffett? I think she also has one on how um, Warren mm -hmm. Buffett interprets uh, financial statements. And then Preston, I believe is what's his last name? Preston Pish and Stig Brogenson. They wrote a very good book, I think called The Warren Buffett Accounting Book, I want to say. And okay. I think that's a fantastic book. 10 out of 10 for people to uh, read to really, I guess, understand like analyzing financial statements and coming at it really from a Warren Buffett mindset.
So that's a really good book. Um, any opinion on advertisement versus subscription revenue? And he's talking about uh, Spotify, Google, Discovery, and I don't know what VIV is. Yeah. Um, well, right now, advertising won't be as good. So, uh, advertising. All those companies should do worse, is what you're saying. They will, I think they've said they'll do. I mean, I think ad rates are down like 30% or something. Uh-huh. Um, so, I think that that's universally true across uh, the internet. Um, uh, that's just a cyclical thing, though. I mean, I think most ad companies have said this will be worse than 2008. Um, and I mean, it already is worse than 2008, but they mean I think it'll continue for a bit. So, yeah, I think that um, in the long run, you know, subscription stuff works better for mass stuff. So usually, I mean, there are a few examples of things that, I mean, like HBO and Netflix that are really mass worldwide and uh, subscriber supported, but it's a lot easier to expand uh, geometrically, you know, uh, to some huge amount of the world if you are just ad supported. So, you know, Google obviously would never be that successful with either Google or YouTube if it charged for it. Got yeah, it. I guess they, they do charge for some YouTube, but I don't think it's very successful. Um, this is actually one of my friends. He says, how are you going to recover both physically and mentally after you fail to complete our bet? So actually, Jeff, I should, I'll, I'll go on the record saying this. So um, there's not a lot to do in quarantine other than work, right? And probably a couple of weeks ago, I was on a walk with a couple of friends and we got on the topic of like long distance running and I don't run, right? I enjoy okay. lifting, working out, okay. but I don't yeah. run. And um, I have a prop bet going with a bunch of people, no one believes in me, Jeff, that okay. I can't run 10 miles within an hour and 45 minutes. So it's a 10 minute, 30 second average for 10 miles. Um, and I get to train until May 17th. Here's what's the wild card. And it's funny, Jeff, because I actually, I saw, uh, I was running yesterday at, at Germany Park in Highland Park, Texas, like Dallas area. And somebody mm-hmm. actually listened to the podcast. was like, Hey, are you Andrew? And we were talking about, um, Sarence. Remember that spinoff? Okay. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So that was, that was funny. Um, but that's, that's what that bet is. And I've actually ran twice, 10 miles within an hour, 45 minutes, but the wild card and the part that's actually kind of scaring me is I don't know how hot it's going to be on May 17th in Texas. <laughs> I've looked online and the average temperature is like 80, but, or I'm sorry, 86. But okay. if it's like 99 degrees, I'm dead. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm literally dead. There's no, I mean, I'm not going to stop. So I'm either going to win it or I'm going to die. Um, but that's what uh, that bet is. So that's what he's asking. So Jeff, you got a root for me. All right. If there's any competitive runners out there that want to give me tips, reach out to me. Get into my DMs because I need your help. I got like, I'm. There's like no one that believes in me, Jeff. There's like 10 people on the other side of this. And then it's funny because sports betting is down. So now I have friends that are like betting other people. Like someone bet somebody that the race isn't going to even happen because my only opt out is if I were to get coronavirus or Dallas goes on full on lockdown um, and you can't do any sort of working out. So. And what, so someone involved bet somebody else that the race isn't even going to happen. I'm like, it's, it's bringing out all this craziness, but I think it's a win-win for me. Cause a, I'm going to beat them and B I'm going to become like the best runner on the planet. Huh? <laughs> um, somebody asked in a previous write up, 
You had mentioned that TRUX Truxton was near the top of your list, given that it is 20% off the highs. Is this something you are more interested in or less in the current environment? Has your thinking changed regarding Truxton in focus compoundings, management, uh, manage accounts versus fund versus both? Uh, Truxton's a little complicated because it's not immediately hurt by the change in interest rates in terms of the yield curve, the way that most banks are. So it's a little weird. It'll actually report probably somewhat better um, net interest margin type results for a little while. Um, but in general, I would say banks are at least 20% less valuable than they were before this all started. So okay. if the stocks, you know, if, bank, if a bank stock's down only 20%, I'd say it's not necessarily more attractive than it was before. Uh, but like I said, it depends on the exact interest rate situation. Theirs is not, their earnings won't be hurt the same way that Frost's earnings will be hurt and stuff like that. It depends on the yield curve and how that works for that bank. Got it. Do you have any thoughts on Spotify? Have you ever looked at it? No, I've never looked at Spotify. All right. Uh, would you value Starbucks the same way you would you valued Cheesecake in the episode on valuation slash intrinsic value? If not, how would you value it? Um, I don't know if I would value it the same way. Uh, I, I would be willing to pay more for Starbucks than for cheesecake, um, relative to multiples and stuff like that. But I, I would probably use the, um, the, if we go to st on the quick FS, we can look at this. The, um, I would use the, the long-term sales. I mean, today's sales and the long-term operating margin probably. So your long-term EBIT margin is around 16%. And then I would use that. That's about right. I have valued stocks before like Greg's in the UK and stuff like that using the same approach. I think this is very important for use with um, restaurant uh, type stocks, including fast food restaurants, because there is a tendency for them to have a big drop in EBIT margin, but that'll very frequently recover. Uh, profitability, the persistency of profitability in restaurants and, and especially fast food and stuff is pretty high. So what tends to happen is you have a bad period for the company where it looks like their um, margins are down a lot and then people value it a lot lower on those margins. And in fact, it's a really good time to buy. So a good time to buy is when the EV to sales drops a lot. Um, sometimes that drops a lot more than the price to earnings. So I would not use PE so much. I would use a normalized um, profit with uh, the, the sales. So EV to sales and then the long-term average profit margin. Yeah. Got it. Um, uh, let's see any historical guides on how to navigate the markets post correction, say from 2008 to 2009, uh, like what to focus on, what to ignore, et cetera. Yeah. So, I mean, the biggest upside will be in things that are really valuable, but, um, uh, uh have a lot of debt right now or something. So an example would be uh, like Cedar Fair or something uh, in terms of recovering in 2008, 2009. Uh, it's a little different now because Cedar Fair has more stuff going on with it actually being shut down and people not wanting to be in crowds and stuff even when things open up again, as opposed to um, what happened in 2008, 2009. But so highly leveraged things that have a lot of um, uh, that had the potential to trade at really high multiples once they recover. And then another thing that does recover in a huge way is net nets. So net nets tend to do really, really well when there's the first expansion of the economy again and stocks recover. So if you happen to buy net nets at the moment where a bear market turns into a bull market, that will that usually will vastly outperform indexes and higher quality stocks and things like that. So uh, net nets and also highly leveraged um, things that are at their core very, very good businesses. So, um, I mean, I, I wrote up Haynes Brands, for instance, 
for the website. Uh, it's, I don't know, if you go to QuickFS, we could check the latest uh, stock price on it because I'm a little concerned that it might be a much higher price now than I'm talking about it's, it, so. Yeah. So it, stock price, yeah. And I was talking about it as a really attractive price being maybe $4, it was getting close to that. So it's a bit more expensive than that already, but that's the kind of thing, heavily um, leveraged and stuff but fundamentally a pretty basically decent business, a predictable business. And um, what tends to happen then is people kind of um, uh, get concerned about debt and stuff and just uh, generally have lower prices on the stock. After a little bit, a higher quality, I don't want to say higher quality, even a more predictable business like this, this just sells very basic stuff. Um, people will get comfortable with the debt again. So like if you look at EV to EBITDA or something, a lot of that is because the debt portion of that is like, three um, of the, you know, so that's 5.6, probably three times or more is, is debt to EBITDA anyway. So what'll happen is they'll get more comfortable with that and it, that can number could double or something. So when people get more comfortable with solid companies holding a lot of, uh, carrying a lot of debt, those tend to be the ones. So if you know a company is gonna make it out and be fine, but it has a lot of debt now, that tends to be the thing that performs really well. Got it. Um, can members see what you guys own? Uh, we don't have anything directly that shows that, but Jeff, you may say in the write-ups that you do if we own it or not sometimes. That might be the case. In general, though, I tend to write things up before we would own it because we aren't that quick to buy something. I usually I research it for a while and stuff. So things I've written up have been bought eventually. But yeah. What are your thoughts on WFCF? Is that where food comes from? What is that stock? I don't think if yeah, I recognize the ticker. I believe that's exactly what it is. Yeah, where food comes from. I looked at it a while ago. Yeah, I, I've I've read about the stock. Um, it's interesting. It's an interesting business. It's certainly I thought it was fun to read about. Yeah, it's something societally that um, I don't think we could judge much from the quick FS, you know. But it's yeah. something that societally is interesting. I wouldn't mind learning about. I don't have a strong opinion about it, but yeah, I've read the um, 10K or whatever. Yeah. Uh, please comment on the quality of earnings in capital-intensive businesses like railroads. Are the Class One railroads good businesses? Yes, I think the Class 1 railroads are good businesses. Class 1 is a very big uh, railroad and in North America. There, there's, um, I don't know if it's six or what of them right now. Um, but uh, they are good businesses. Let, let's just type one in to see. I'll just pick a random one. Type in UNP in QuickFS. So that'll be Union Pacific. And there's no reason why I picked this one. It just is one of them. Um, the one that isn't publicly traded is Burlington Northern. That's one of the Class 1 uh, railroads that's uh, owned by Berkshire. I mean, that's that's a, it's the only one I can think of that isn't publicly traded. It's it's owned as part of Berkshire. So uh, yes, they're good. You can look down at return on invested capital. That's an exaggeration of their actual returns. However, they can comfortably use debt very comfortably. So even when you factor in the um, the fact that like if we look, see, so we see that the um, EBIT margin conversion to free cash flow is very low. So free cash flow is uh, average free cash flow margin was about 15%, whereas the EBIT margin is about 36%. So it's a low conversion there. However, because they can use leverage, what you're seeing is that even if those return on invested capitals are really like 10% or something in cash terms, you can put so much leverage on them safely um, that they could achieve really nice returns on equity that way. Berkshire has done this with railroads and also utilities, regulated utilities. They're both fine businesses, if you use a lot of debt to finance them and you can so a railroad can issue a bond that's like doing 2100 or something at like an 80 year bond or something and people will actually buy it um, and not at an insanely high rate 
So if you can finance things like that, you have almost permanent capital and they are that safe now. Um, so yeah, I think they're good businesses. I think they, their earnings are really exaggerated and I think that they have to be leveraged, but they all are leveraged. So um, you have to think of them like a utility. Can you recommend resources to practice how to get the intrinsic value range of a company? Uh, I cannot. Um, I would I say just read. Read like Value Investors Club. Read write-ups where people are practicing yeah. and giving their, their rational be between or why they're picking the multiples or however they're valuing the company. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Um, any examples of companies that have lost and regained their moat? That's incredibly hard to do. Um, the, the pretty depressing thing is not only is it hard for a company to lose and regain its moat, it's pretty hard for a company that didn't have a moat to start with to end up getting one. Uh, there's a book written a long time ago, Good to Great. And whatever, you know, whether you agree with that book or not and how it measures good to great, uh, the num that's not a common thing that happens to businesses that they go from good to great. Uh, businesses that have moats usually have them from very early on. So it's hard for me to think of one that lost their moat and then regained it. Um, that's really, really difficult to think of. There are some businesses that kind of transition from doing one thing to another. And, you know, um, but I don't know. Uh, not really. Not really. I mean, there are some that inherited a name. And, and even then, I don't think they really lost it and regained it. But they gained a different moat um, in some cases I can think of. Uh, this guy asked, Netflix may not be in your guys' focus, but if you can provide any insight before they report earnings, it would be interesting to hear. Uh, I, I do not have any insight. Uh, JLMC, half of net cash plus account receivable. VCI, yeah. so he's asking uh, for us to do, probably just look okay. at these. Okay, so, sure. So is that the Couture thing that let's type in JLMC? Let's see. Yeah. That's what I'm thinking of. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, this has been a net net a bunch of times. Uh, the data that we have from QuickFS isn't useful because it's now a, a dark stock. Um, actually, if you look at the business description, it might tell me, was it always listed in the U.S.? Or, yeah, it never, it never listed anywhere else, right? Okay. So it's just a dark stock. Um, it has been a net net before. Uh, I, d I don't know that much about it, but uh, that has happened before. And uh, you'd have to look at it and not one of those things. So th that's important because those kinds of things are net nets that other people might not pick up on. So a dark net net is actually sometimes a better one to find. Uh -huh. uh, what about Vitreous Glass? That's a company Vitreous, that you've ran up on the website and we sure, talked about and, a little bit. And I liked it a lot. Vitreous Glass is a weird problem though that you have to be careful about. So Vitreous Glass has only a couple suppliers and a couple customers. Actually it has one supplier and a couple customers. Um, the customers use it as like fiberglass insulation type stuff or an alternative to that for building houses and things like that. Um, the, uh, the supplier is the recycling program of, I believe the province of Alberta, um, to supply them with like, uh, reused, um, with like glass bottles, like, like beer and soda and stuff bottles. Um, both of those have issues now because there's not construction activity going on and there's not, uh, and there's not the glass collection at the same rate as before going on. So it's really weird problem. I thought this company would be completely safe and stuff. It's gonna, we're gonna see what can go wrong because it, it's gonna have this issue. Um, I don't think it'll burn a lot of cash or anything like that uh, is my guess, but it's sort of a just in time kind of thing. It, it takes in and then turns it into a product immediately that can be used. I don't think there'll be any demand for that product for a little while. So, cause it, I really supplies like two plants basically. And if they're not 
as there's not construction activity in the area, then there's no need for them to have it. What about Gaines Co.? Is, so, is that what it? Uh, oh no, I'm sorry. G A N P L C. We actually just we actually just talked about this company, right? Gain Enterprise Online. Have you looked at this company? Uh, no, I've never looked at this company. And it and um, yeah, I've never looked at this company. All right, let's see. My bad. I S D R. Issuer Direct, right? Is that Issuer Direct? Yes. Yeah, I have looked at Issuer Direct. They don't have a very strong opinion on it, really. You can look at the business description. The business description is kind of interesting for this one of what it does. So you can see why, if you kind of read about it, um, it would be something that we might be interested in. Many people who um, are listening to this right now know enough about the industry and stuff that this might be very interesting. So, and we do own shares of uh, OTC markets, just so people know that. So it, there's some of the same sort of stuff that they are doing. Uh, yeah, somebody actually recommended this stock to me um, today, believe it or not. He said to let you know, in addition, the company provides SEC documents, conversions and editing, stock certificates, yeah. fulfillment and delivery. Yeah, that's interesting. Have you mm -hmm. ever looked at it? Yeah, I have. Yeah. What didn't you like about it? Or No, what, there's nothing I didn't there's, I wouldn't say there's anything I didn't like about it. I uh, think you're saying you don't like the stock. No, I said we own OTC markets, and so maybe yeah. I said that I like OTC markets better. You know, Why do you hate the stock, Jeff? Why do you hate the stock? <laughs> All right, Lasso Magic Software Enterprises, MGIC. Uh, I've never looked at this company. Have you? I don't think I have looked at this company. Nice no. kager on revenue. It's it's an Israeli company. Um, yeah. No, I, I don't think I have looked at this company. So... We've come across um, a couple Israeli companies before, and we usually just stay away. Uh, we've come across a couple of interesting Israeli companies. Um, there's what was that one company that we looked at? What did they do? Like telematics type of thing? Yeah, Iteron. I think was it Iteron is yeah. the one that's listed in Israel. Yeah. yeah there's another uh, one, Mixed Telemax, which is is a South African company, but listed here. I mean, there's some legitimate reasons for why a company Israel is a very small market. Why a company would be in Israel and then listed here, or why it'd be in South Africa and listed here. I'm a little cautious about that. Um, it just because whenever uh, you know you're listing in a, a different country, that way. I mean, it's not as big a deal as like if it's an American company listing in Canada or something that's profoundly weird like that. But um, yeah, I mean, some companies from small markets like that, it makes total sense. And sometimes they have big businesses outside their country, so I wouldn't rule them all out or anything like that. I just would make a note of it that you're listed in a country that's different than uh, where you where you're headquartered. Got it. Um, let's go back. Okay. Would you ever invest in a biotech or pharma sector stock, assuming it's overlooked? I can't imagine that I ever would. Um, Have you ever looked at them before? Yes. So I looked very deeply at a lot of them almost 20 years ago, decided I couldn't understand any of them, and decided to buy a testing company instead, which did mostly urine and blood testing. And that worked out well. But I, I, that's how basic my understanding is of those sorts of things that after reading about all the big pharma stocks and stuff, I settled on a like micro cap that did uh, a pretty basic testing as a better choice. So that gives you some idea of how little I understand big pharma. <laughs> uh, what's the significance of seven to eight times EV to EBITDA in terms of earnings yield? Uh, well, historically, stocks trading at seven to eight times EBITDA, if you look at all U.S. stocks and stuff, might have converted that into about 15 times free cash flow versus enterprise value. However, it depends heavily on the industry that it's in. So it's not always that meaningful. 
like we own shares of NACO. If NACO traded seven or eight times EBITDA, they'd actually be quite cheap. Also, there's been a change in corporate taxes, so that actually is kind of a low multiple now. Uh, there's plenty of companies that 10 times EBITDA or something would only work out to be an average price now. But yes, historically, if you're looking at stocks from uh, decades ago or something, and you keep hearing people talk about eight times EBITDA, that's very similar to the average price at which stocks traded um, when you adjust for leverage and stuff, which is like a P of 15, 16, 17. Those tend to, the two things tend to be pretty similar across the board. Got it. Um, have a couple questions left. Uh, it says uh, six to 12 month outlook on BDCs, business development companies. Is there a percentage decline at which any of the top names become a buy? It's just not an area that um, I'm likely to buy things in. Yeah, same. Uh, Schiller PE that many investors rely on is defined as price divided by the average of 10 years of earnings. Don't you think 10 years is too short? Uh, too short of a time, it does not include a full cycle, which causes this ratio to be irrelevant. Uh, I don't think it causes the ratio to be irrelevant. I use a different method of um, coming to the same conclusion as the Schiller PE. They almost always agree. The method that I used was to take the 15 year, and you could take even longer, I did 30 years, and then to draw um, lines from each one forward from each of the last points uh, by a standard rate, in the case I picked 6%. Um, and so what you would do is you would just assume that earnings from 30 years ago compounded at 6% to today, 29 years ago, 6% to today, give them all equal weight. It doesn't matter that much if you use 30 or 15. The Schiller P uses inflation and stuff because that's what economists like doing. I don't think it matters. Um, I think all those methods are basically give you the same signal at the same time. So, uh, yeah, but that was in um, 2006, 2007. I did a whole series on my old blog about normalized PE ratios. And the method that I used is different than how the Schiller PE method works. It's a different number of years. It's a different method of normalizing. Still works out the same way. In my experience, past peak earnings, uh, price to sales things, all this stuff gives you the exact same signal at the same time. Like right now, we're expensive on all those measures. If you look at, so people complain about the Schiller P like they either like it or they say, oh, but this time is different from the Schiller P because the Schiller P is wrong for this reason. It doesn't matter because if the Schiller P is wrong, I could show you a normalized P method and it'll give you the exact same uh, kind of numbers in terms of percentile. So if the Schiller P says we're in the 90th percentile or whatever in terms of expensiveness, chances are we're also in about the 90th percentile in terms of expensiveness versus um, like a price to sales thing or like other methods of normalizing. Uh, I just use a different approach, but I'm not more in favor of the approach I use than the, than the Schiller method. They both work fine. People widely use the Schiller method, so there's no reason not to use it. I think it's uh, it works okay. None of it, I don't think it's remotely important which method you use. Um, if it was, then in a sense, it wouldn't be very, I wouldn't trust it. If it's a method that's so good that it's the one way of calculating P that really works, then I would not trust that measure. It has to be that slight changes to how you calculate something don't change the uh, the reading that you get, basically. So if you do uh, slight variations on the Schiller PE, like you go back 15 years or 30 years or whatever instead of 10, and it changes the answer that you get and says now it's really cheap, when before it said it's really expensive, then that's a bad measure. But if it gives you the same readings across all that stuff, then it's fine. And in my experience, the Schiller PE is, is fine. It's more accurate than using like the PE ratio, it's a lot more accurate than going by like what people generally feel in their heads, whether expensive or not, which seems to be very biased towards if we've been up or down a bunch recently. So yeah, I think it's a pretty good method. Cool. Uh, and the focus compounding daily, I thought this was a great um, write-up. And somebody had asked you, what do you think about 
cloning the portfolios of super investors. And this term from cloning, I mean, obviously a lot of people have, of course, you know, done this, but the guy that I guess used the exact term cloning was Monish Pabrai. And yep. he's talked a lot about, you know, using uh, cloning as sort of like a mental model and uh, spending a lot of time in the 13Fs to read about stocks that other investors are buying. And um, this gentleman asked you a question and your answer was, you think the portfolio moves of super investors could tell you more about what they buy um, than when to sell. So I'm kind of curious if you could just give me your thoughts on this and why you think that way. And if you think this is a good strategy for people to find, um, you know, in the beginning of the podcast, when we were talking about that person asked how to practice calculate intrinsic value, um, I guess this could be a good way to do it, right? If you spend a lot of time in 13Fs and you see an investor that you respect buy a company, maybe it could be good to, you know, go in, spend some time trying to value these businesses and reverse engineer um, what that investor sees. Yeah, and I think it's a great way to get a list of stocks that you might be interested in is the 13F. So instead of running a screen, it's basically a screen for you. So I think that's a great way to do it. So if you want to just find a way to have 10Ks to go over something yourself, using the ones that are the investors you like the best, what they own makes a lot of sense. This question did ask about like their concern was, um, but I won't know when to sell. And I think that's usually an over um, for most investors. Now there could be investors where this is different, but for most investors that you might want to copy, uh, I don't think it's that important to sell at the same time they do or at the same price that they do. I've gone back and looked at my own performance and things and how selling helped or didn't help and stuff like that. It hasn't been, uh, there isn't much evidence that the selling helped a lot. Uh, there've been some studies of different people uh, who are professionals who've done well. And many of those cases, it was uh, found, you know, academics argue that they didn't sell at a very good time, like they held too long and stuff. So I think that, we could get a little too focused on, oh, they're selling, I need to get out now, or I don't know. Like uh, the, in the question, it was like, well, if I hear that someone bought something in the first place, but I can't track the 13F because maybe they're too small an investor or they're whatever. Um, so I won't know when they sell. I don't think that matters that much. What matters is identifying the business that they bought or sometimes the fact that, they, that something was incredibly cheap when they bought it. So it could be either one. Um, but I think the selling is, is somewhat less important. I wouldn't worry as much about that. Um, so then I went into talking about like, but some of the problems are, if you really want to copy people's portfolios, like I gave examples about Buffett, you copy his biggest positions, but they're old. Usually Apple isn't that old, but a bunch of them are older or like in that. Yeah, there you go. So I talk about like American Express and Coke. Those are like 30 years old. Bank of America is over, you know, it's getting close to 10 years old now. Apple's only a few years older, uh, only a few years old, but I, I assume you would say, okay, well, Apple based on the price and how recent it is and stuff might be really attractive. Bank of America might be attractive, but you're kind of using your judgment. Like you're thinking, okay, well, Coke, no, he hasn't been buying it. And it was a long time ago that he did buy it. And it's not that cheap versus prices he once paid in terms of multiples. Um, Wells Fargo, he actually sold some of, and he has bought other banks while selling Wells Fargo. So maybe that means he doesn't like Wells Fargo that much. But then does that mean, you know, you have to use your judgment there. I would think that most of us would say, based on looking at his biggest positions, the two that make the most sense are probably Bank of America and Apple. They're very big positions for him. They're not that, uh, they're not very expensive versus where he bought them necessarily, although they're not exactly the same price. Um, and he, he doesn't have a history of selling them down a lot. 
he sold a little bit sometimes without um, uh, without having any purchases in between and stuff. So I would guess you would pick those, but it kind of depends on your judgment because otherwise you're saying, oh, you should buy a lot of Coke, but he hasn't bought Coke in an incredibly long time, you know? So I don't know what the signal is from the 13F that you want to interpret that way. Uh, mm. Yeah. No, so, ahead. I mean, yeah. And the other example was like Einhorn, I gave as an example where his biggest position would be uh, like, or one of his biggest positions would be Greenbrick Partners. But on the other hand, he hasn't added to it as recently as added to some other things. And it's just a position that he always has. So do you bet on that one? I think as a name, yes, you look into it, right? So if you're using this yeah. to research, then you definitely research Greenbrick Partners because he owns it in a big way. But I don't know if that's a very good signal that he owns a lot now that he would be buying it now versus something that's new to the portfolio, you know? Mm-hmm. Nah, I would definitely agree with that. Cool. Well, if you want to get access to this, you can either follow me on Twitter at Focus Compound or just go to focuscompounding.com, enter in your email for free, and you will get this in your email box Monday through Friday. I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with Jeff and myself. Make sure you hit that subscribe button if you are watching us on YouTube. And then, of course, on the podcast app, a rating and review goes a very long way. We're pumping out a ton of content. Um, and if you want to show appreciation in any way, um, the best way to do that is just to simply leave a rating and review you i want to thank everybody so much for tuning with jeff and myself we look forward to seeing you both or seeing you all on wednesday and we will talk to you then take care